Acts chapter 8. I was going to read the entire text, which is verses 9 through 24, but we're actually going to, just to save time, I'll just give you the title to my sermon. We'll jump into the introduction, pave the way for our sermon, and then jump in. We'll we'll walk through every verse together anyway. So have your Bible open, if you would, to Acts chapter 8. We'll look at verses 9 through 24. Here's the message under this title. The faith that will not save. The faith that will not save. One of the most fearful realities, I believe, in all of Scripture is that some who think they're saved will be eternally lost. Jesus spoke of this reality himself. In fact, he said in Matthew chapter 7 that many, not a few, many will believe they're saved, but later realize in eternity they've never truly been born again. They took the wrong path. Matthew 7, 13, enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And watch the next words, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Even more pointedly in Matthew 7, 22, many, not a few, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. John MacArthur says about this verse, to their horror, many will discover too late that there is an entrance to hell at the edge of the very gates of heaven. That is a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought that so many will come so close, but miss the Lord Jesus Christ all together. Here's what we're going to discover from our text today. Whenever the gospel is preached, it inevitably produces two kinds of faith. Genuine saving faith and false faith. In our text next week, we're going to Look at the positive example of saving faith through the salvation of of who Luke calls the Ethiopian eunuch. But in our text today, we're given a negative example of false faith through a man named Simon. We're going to discover that Simon appeared to be a genuine believer. Even one as discerning as Philip, the deacon that we talked about last week. Philip accepted Simon as a believer. He baptized Simon. The the verse is even going to show us in verse 13 that Simon continued on with Philip. That means he literally manifested three marks of a genuine believer. Number one, he believed. Number two, he was obedient in baptism. By the way, you don't have to get baptized to go to heaven, but saved people get baptized. Number three, he continued on with Philip. It wasn't until he attempted to buy the authority to confer the Holy Spirit that his false faith was revealed. So the question of the text is this, where did Simon get it wrong? How did he come so close yet still miss out on true salvation? There were four faults in his theology, four characteristics of false faith. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. Open up your Bible and read with me. But there was a certain man called Simon which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, 
This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard. Because out of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. Here's the first characteristic of false faith. It has a wrong view of self. Simon was practicing sorcery. This would have been what they called magic. This practice goes all the way back to the Magi who produced this uh, type of sorcery and practiced this type of of what many believe to be satanic sorcery in Medo-Persia. It was a mix of science and superstition. It combined uh, the thoughts of astrology with various occultic practices. Well, Simon used his ability with sorcery to impress the person or the people of Samaria. And over time, he earned a pretty big following. Everybody, we read it, they thought he was great. Because of his ability in magic. So much so that they likened him to deity, to God. There's even records of the early church fathers reporting that Simon viewed himself as God incarnate. I believe this view of himself as being as great as God is what doomed Simon to hell. See, as long as Simon had an elevated view of himself, he couldn't come to a proper view of his sinful condition. Here's the problem. Simon was locked in the grip of pride and he couldn't see himself for who he really is. a, A sinner in need of a savior. I think pride is the most characteristic and controlling sin in all human fallenness. Think about it. Pride costs man the Garden of Eden. Pride costs the fallen angels heaven. Pride doomed Sodom and Gomorrah. Pride made King Nebuchadnezzar lose his ability to reason. Pride caused Rehoboam to lose his kingdom. Pride caused Uzziah to lose his health. Pride caused Haman to lose his life. In Luke 18, verse 9 through 14, Jesus gives a parable of how pride can even keep someone out of heaven. Read along on the screen. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, here's the strike contrast, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven. He smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's Jesus' conclusion. I tell you, this man, the publican, the humble man, went down to his house justified, saved, rather than the other arrogant, prideful man. And here's the message to us. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. This is so important because it teaches us this. Those who fail to see themselves as sinners will see no need for a savior. You hearing me? Those who fail to see themselves as sinners will see no need for a savior. Simon didn't really get saving faith because he still saw himself as greater than he actually was. If you view yourself as the incarnate God, you do not view yourself as a sinner in need of an incarnate God. And friend, if you come here and think higher of yourself than you really are, that 
kind of pride will keep you out of heaven. Jesus said the only people that get to the kingdom of heaven are those that come to him with a childlike humility and faith. Humble, dependent, knowing they can't get there on their own. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Simon's false faith was first characterized by a wrong view of self. Look at two more verses, verses 12 and 13. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered or was amazed, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Notice, secondly, false faith has a wrong view of salvation. Because of Philip's preaching, he was a dynamic deacon who knew how to preach the word. Many Samaritans were getting saved and they were getting baptized. As more people believed and began to follow Philip, Simon saw his following dwindle in numbers and that concerned him. He was impressed by Philip's power. He wanted some of it for himself. So he made the claim that he was going to believe in Philip's Messiah. He even got baptized and he continued on with Philip. Why? If this wasn't real, why did he do it? I can think of three reasons. First, I think he wanted to sustain contact with the people following the preacher. By joining Philip's movement, he went where the action was and he kept his opportunity for influence alive. Second, as he observed the signs and and the miracles that took place, he was amazed. It said he wondered. He was amazed. He had a professional interest in finding out the source of, of Philip's amazing powers. Not a spiritual interest, a professional interest. Third, as his later conduct's going to show, he wanted to figure out how to acquire that power for himself. If you study this history, you'll understand that magicians in this day often sold each other their tricks and incantations. He was trying to negotiate this with Philip. Well, here's the problem with Simon's view of salvation. He viewed it as purely ritualistic. He viewed it as an external matter, as a means to an end. He viewed it it just as an additional act in his life instead of the total transformation of his whole person on the inside. Here's the the truth. Faith doesn't transform the life. If it's not, if faith that doesn't transform the life is not saving faith at all. That's my point. Faith that doesn't transform the life is not saving faith at all. How do I know? James says in James 2. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? In other words, can that kind of faith save him? Faith without works? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, they don't have clothes, they don't have their next meal. And one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful for the body. What doth it profit? If you see a hungry man or a person shriveling in the cold, And and they have nowhere to go. And you walk up to them, shake their hands and say, God bless you. And walk off. What have you done? What doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. James 2 verse 19 says, thou believest that there is one God. Well, thou doest well because the devils also believe and tremble. The devil admits that there's one God. Yet the devil doesn't love righteousness. The devil doesn't hate sin. 
the devil's works don't back up his faith. And that's the case with many who have claimed to come to a saving faith. They say they believe in God, but their actions and their attitudes show that their faith is not real. There's been no change in how they view their sin. Now, I'm not trying to say that our actions and attitudes change overnight. Loving righteousness and hating unrighteousness is a lifelong journey. But genuinely saved people, though they're not perfect, will get to a point where they desire to pursue righteousness and fight against sin. When somebody's salvation or their conversion is just a mere profession or a ritualistic act of some kind, or just a desire to have God fix something in their life on the outside, you know what? It'll eventually show up when the fact that they aren't very serious about their commitment to righteousness. They aren't very surrendered in their fight against sin. They aren't genuinely interested in a heart change that would ultimately result in a life transformation. When when, when that so-called saving faith they have puts a band-aid on their problems, you won't see them again until they have another problem. That's not saving faith. Jesus didn't come to fix you on the outside. That's not his point. He said everything that defiles a person doesn't start on the outside. It starts on the inside. Jesus came to remodel you from the inside out. He came to to bury the old man and give you new life in Christ. He didn't come just to make your life easier for a season. And then say, come back and see me when it gets hard again. That's not the Bible we read or the God we serve. He, he does not want to be used like a genie in a bottle. He is not a cosmic Santa Claus that you come to once a year if you behave good enough. He died on an old rugged cross for the sin that we refuse to fight against sometimes. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. So you wouldn't have to bear God's punishment on your life for your sin. He does not intend for his saving faith to touch your life without eradicating your sin. Not to a point of perfection. That doesn't happen until we're glorified in heaven. Even so come Lord Jesus. But until then there's a process of sanctification. From glory to glory. God's word through God's spirit and God's people is changing you one little bit at a time. Do not stop cooperating with God's desire to change you. Genuine Christians, they might get off the track every once in a while, and I'm in that club. But they always try to find a way back to the Lord. Notice thirdly, verses 14 through 19. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God... They sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered him money, saying, Give me also this power, that whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Third characteristic of false faith, it has a wrong view of the spirit. Has a wrong view of self, it has a wrong view of sin, and it has a wrong view of 
the Spirit. When word of of this amazing success of Philip's ministry reached all the way back to the church in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem decided to send two apostles, Peter and John, to check it out. Threefold purpose for this. Their mission was threefold. First, they, they came for practical reasons to help Philip with the spiritual harvest. The response of the Samaritans was so large, one guy couldn't handle it. Second, they came to give apostolic sanction and blessing to Philip's work among the Samaritans. The, the, the apostles were the leaders of the church, and they maintained that position even after the church spread from Jerusalem. Finally, they came down from Jerusalem and they prayed for the Samaritans. We read it, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because although they had been saved already and then baptized, the Spirit hadn't yet fallen upon them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now let's take a quick time out to discuss this. Because we've always taught that when you get saved, you are instantly indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So why was that not the case here? Many use this passage, a few others, to teach that Christians receive the Spirit subsequent or after salvation. And they appeal to scripture passages like this, especially in the book of Acts, not the epistles. They argue that this is a clear example that you can get saved, but then you need a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I would argue that this isn't normative in the rest of the New Testament. This kind of teaching about the Spirit, I think, ignores the transitional nature of the book book of Acts, which is an historical narrative of the church between the times of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It also flies in the face of the clear teaching of Paul to the Christians in Rome, Rome chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Watch this. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. In other words, there's no such thing as a Christian who does not yet have the Holy Spirit. So then why do the Samaritans, and you can read later, the Gentiles, have to wait for the apostles before receiving the Spirit? Well, for centuries, the Samaritans and the Jews had been bitter rivals. For over a thousand years, they hated each other. If the Samaritans had received the Spirit independent of the Jerusalem church, that rift would have probably continued. There would have been two separate churches. A Jewish church and a Samaritan church. By delaying the Spirit's coming until Peter and John arrived, God was working to preserve the unity of the church. The apostles needed to see for themselves and get first-hand testimony to the Jerusalem church that the Samaritans indeed did get saved. Were willing to repent of their sins. Because when the Jerusalem church was hearing about their These half-breed Samaritans, these half-breed Jews, these Samaritans, these these dirty, filthy race of people. Whenever whenever they heard, oh, they're getting saved, their natural inclination would have been to do what they've been doing for the last thousand years. Saying, whatever. They didn't get saved. And, and, And thus there would have been a rift in the church. And so the Jerusalem church sent their apostles to confirm firsthand This was real. They believed the gospel. They repented of their sins. And now the the Jews and the Samaritans and eventually the Jews and the Gentiles were linked together into one body as God intended for them to be. 
Galatians chapter 3, 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Why did they delay? Why did the church of Jerusalem send them? What was God up to in this? He was trying to preserve the unity of the early church. Now that the transitional time in Acts is behind us, believers receive the Spirit immediately upon salvation. Back to our text, when they arrived, Peter and John, we read it, they began laying their hands on the Samaritan believers. They, they were receiving the Holy Spirit, and that stood out to Simon, right? I mean, Philip impressed him, but Peter and John overwhelmed him. And Simon couldn't contain it any longer. He spoke up. He said, I want some of that. Give me some of that there power. I want to be able to do the same thing you're doing. He's thinking in his brain, can you imagine the following that I would have among the Samaritans? If I could do what you do, teach me what you do. And if I have to pay for it, I'll pay for it. Name the price. And then Peter, the apostle Peter responded in a very Peter-like way. Shut up, Simon. Not really. He didn't say that. He said, keep your money. It's going to perish right along with your soul. Because your approach to God is totally off. Your understanding of the spirit is totally wrong. And your heart isn't right. Here's the truth. Nothing that God has is for sale. Especially the Holy Spirit. Hear me. There is nothing that sinful men can offer God. Scripture clearly teaches that God pours out a salvation. God gives his spiritual blessings and far as the eternal blessings freely to those who seek him. You don't buy it. You don't earn it. Yet countless thousands are striving desperately and futilely to buy God's favor and forgiveness. Salvation only comes to those who by faith transfer their reliance from themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. They stop trying to earn God's favor. They stop trying to perform for God's favor. They stop trying to behave good enough to get God's favor. Listen, sinners who are truly forgiven, sinners who are truly made right with God have finally come to the point where they say, I can't, but Jesus can. I'm going to stop relying on myself to get to heaven. I'm going to put all my reliance in what Jesus did for me on the cross and through the grave and is still willing to do for me today. Simon exhibited false faith when he viewed himself wrongly, when he viewed salvation wrongly, when he viewed the spirit wrongly. Let me give you one more. Verse 22 through 24. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness and pray God. And perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, pray ye to the Lord for me. That none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. False faith has a wrong view, lastly, of sin. Please hear me until I'm closed today. Peter follows this condemnation of Simon. With a call for his genuine repentance. He he challenges Simon to have a correct view of his sin. One that sees it for what it is. One that repents. One that turns from it. And he said if you do. If you repent. You're going to be forgiven. He even uses these Old Testament expressions to emphasize to Simon. the, The severity and seriousness of his sin. He uses the phrase the gall of bitterness. 
He uses the phrase, the bond of iniquity. What's he doing? He's trying to get Simon to realize that we aren't talking about just little human mistakes here. We're talking about bondage. We're talking about uh, a bitter state of being holden by the cords of your sin. He was quoting Solomon in Proverbs 5.22, who said, His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself, and ye shall be holden with the cords of his sin. Hear me, unrepentant sinners are in bondage to their iniquity, and they are living in a miserable state of bitterness. When Simon was confronted with his sin, he still wasn't persuaded. He was shaken. He was scared. But he never for himself asked the Lord for forgiveness. His only concern was this. Can you ask God to help me escape the temporal temporal consequences of my sin? I don't want the bond of iniquity. I don't want the gall of bitterness. Can uh, Can you pray for me that I can kind of escape this? No true repentance. Because listen, true repentance is more than just wanting to escape the consequences of your sin. It's more than just saying, I just don't want to go to hell. True repentance is a willingness and a zeal to turn from your sin. Greg Gilbert, he's the one that wrote this right here. That every one of you should be handing out. He wrote this. And he said this, faith in Christ carries in itself a renunciation of that rival power that King Jesus conquered, sin. And where that renunciation of sin is not present, neither is genuine faith in the one who defeated it. Now, I know many Christians struggle hard with the idea of repentance because they somehow expect that if if they genuinely repent, sin will go away. Temptation will stop. And then when they have that harsh reality that temptation doesn't go away, sometimes increases and sin doesn't stop. They fall into despair and they start questioning whether their faith in Jesus is real because they keep sinning. But we have to remember that genuine repentance is is more fundamentally a matter of the heart's attitude towards sin than it is a mere change of behavior. The question isn't, do I sin? The question isn't, how often do I sin? You will be a miserable Christian if you're basing your salvation on how often you sin. Only one sin makes you unworthy of heaven. Only one. So quit keeping score because you've already sinned once today. If it wasn't for Jesus' righteousness on your account, you wouldn't get there. So whether you have one or one million, that's not the point. The question is this, do I hate sin? Am I trying my best to war against sin? Or do I cherish it? Do I hide it? Do I defend it? Repentance is all about our attitude towards sin. I love how one writer put it. The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none. But that one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God. And the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. Wow. Saving faith that involves true repentance. Hear me is when you start to think of your sin differently. When you stop holding on to it and instead you start fighting against it. If you have failed to do that, you might have some type of faith, but not a faith that will save you. Simon was so close to genuine salvation, but he missed it. He missed it because he had a wrong view of self. He had a wrong view of salvation. He had a wrong view of the Spirit. 
and he had a wrong view of sin. I wonder today if there's anyone in here just like Simon. You're so close to salvation, but you're not quite there yet. Maybe you need to humble yourself and see your need for a savior. Maybe you need to stop using God as a bandage to your problems and just let him completely change your life from the heart out. Maybe you need to stop today trying to earn God's salvation through your own effort and rely on Jesus to make you right with the Father. Maybe you need to truly repent. You haven't been willing to let go of your sin. You haven't been willing to pick up your cross, deny yourself, forsake all, and follow Jesus. you just never gotten there. And you need to do that. My prayer all week long has been for that person here today. Or those people here today. Who like Simon are relying on a false faith to save them. Who, who like many others throughout history. Are thinking they're on the narrow road that leads to life. When all reality. They're on the broad road that leads to destruction. For all of those in this room. That if something doesn't change. Would stand before God. And here, depart from me. I never knew you. I'm praying for you. Christians in this room, I bet you right now are praying for you. That you will see your lost condition. That you will recognize your sin. And that you will trust in a loving Savior to save your soul. That you will have genuine saving faith. That takes the reliance off of yourself. Says I can't. And puts it all on what Jesus has already done. To make you right with the Father. Would you stand to your feet every